We are uh, week four of the class thinking biblically about sexuality and gender. Complex topic. Lots of feelings and emotions. Lots of histories uh, and, and philosophies behind things that we want to spend time thinking about. And we've, we've now covered a few things. If you've been with us, week one we addressed in 30 minutes, the 300-year history that actually to show that this is not something brand new, but has basically been in the crock pot of, of Western culture specifically for several centuries. And in many ways, as Casey alluded to even last week, even if, if sexual identity is not a thing that, that has impacted those of us of the Christian persuasion, we have definitely been affected by things like identity politics and identity in general. Like the, so it's not like we can avoid the identity discussion or the impact. It's just in the water and in the air. So week two, I gave something of, of, of what we just simply call a, a biblical theological position on this, that God's word defines these issues for us. Not necessarily all the practices and postures by way of response, but certainly the principles and positions that God defined for us, male and female, and the nature of marriage, and even the nature of sex slash gender, though I tried to explain there's a complexity to that in regard to cultural differentiations in, in what is a man, what is a woman in Japan versus Western world or something to that effect. Casey last week began transitioning us to thinking about, okay, now what do we do with that? And he talked about different paradigms for cultural engagement or different postures. And the postures for cultural engagement is categories that we've been using around here at least for eight years, maybe a little bit more. And the four of those categories are purity from, defense against, relevance to, or faithful presence within. The relevance to is the least common practice in our tradition. That would be more mainline Protestant denominations where they would simply baptize cultural ideas and ideologies, try to Christianize them in some way. The, the ones that, that are the most common in our tradition in the last 50 years, 75 years, would be the purity from pull out, disengage, disengage from school, disengage from culture, disengage from community, disengage from world as much as possible, and defense against attack mode, and usually through the form of politics. We have tried to suggest long before this class that that faithful presence posture is one that takes into consideration all the strengths of the other approaches, specifically the purity from, we are a separate people, and the defense against, there is truth in human flourishing that we should be promoting. But also that the object is not to crush the enemy as if we're the final judge and, and, and rider on the white horse, or simply to remove ourselves completely as if the goal of the Christian life is never seeing a non-Christian again. But that a faithful presence, a presence that is faithful, right, and in but not of is the most honoring to what it looks like to be Christians who submit to the word of God but live in the world in which we have. Well, as we think biblically about sexuality and gender and we kind of turn our focus on engaging with the culture in which we live, I actually wanted to spend time looking at one particular passage uh, from the teachings of Jesus and it is challenging where he literally commands you and me to love our enemies. And I think a good dose of that is essential, especially in the culture in which we are raised, which is either purity from or especially defense against. Where the defense against culture 
posture will cause us to want to label our enemies as enemies, slander our enemies, and hate them. And Jesus is specifically arguing against that approach, right? So again, this isn't a debate about principles. There's no debate here about how did God make male and female and what is marriage for and your your embodied form by your creator is significant and, and essential to what it means to be human. None of that is a debate. We're not debating any of that. In, in other classrooms and other places, that would be debated. None of that's debated. Our debate is, our question is, our challenge is, having our biblical convictions, what does it now look like to engage and live in the world? We're going to read together that Covenant of Communion Minute, and I want to do that especially today, though we're going to do it every week, because you actually see i got mics down here, and one thing I've noticed as I've been in this class and we're participating in discussion is that when someone's talking and you pretty much guarantee 90% can't tell what that person is saying, like even if the instructor helpfully restates, I can still see the, I can't hear, I can't hear, can you hear? going all over the room. So I kind of want to avoid that today because I'm going to do a wonderful, really simple test case at the end of this class, the drag queen in Rockton Library. Great test case today. But I want to have some conversation. And I want to make sure that you can not only hear what this person is saying, Mike, but that even the question or the suggestion or the comment by somebody else can be heard. So Mark Tigelar and I think I've swindled Doug Julien will actually have those mics. You don't have to come up. You can sit where you are. But when it's time for conversation, they will grab it, run it to you. Just wave your hand, and then Mark and Doug will pass it along. But let's read the Covenant of Community, then I will pray, and then, and then we'll jump in. So if you've got on your notes there at the top of the page, Covenant of Community, this is what we want to say. Again, we don't want to just read this and say it. We want to practice this today. Here we go. Lord, help us by your Spirit to hear and see your Word rightly and wisely applied. Listen actively with a desire to learn especially viewpoints not our own. Speak with grace only to build up and encourage one another. Honor all people and see all as made in your image. Love all people, even when it is hard, just as Jesus Christ would do. Father, may that not only be our posture as we discuss as Christians, a tough topic today, may that be our posture as we live in the world. And Father, we have to work hard to do this among ourselves and not to speak with angst or a kind of hate that in no way reflects the way that Jesus engaged with his fallen creation. We especially need your help when we engage with our world. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by, I'm going to read Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You've got it there in your notes, and then I'm going to teach on it for 10, 12 minutes, and then we'll move on and reflect on it. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, and you see that right away in verse 43, is he takes common teachings, not just assumptions. 
He actually takes common teachings and he gives the proper interpretation. Meaning those teachings are rooted in the biblical material. So, so, so hear this. Jesus isn't taking something from the world. What Jesus is taking here is the common and traditional understandings of the religious leaders in Israel in the first century. That is legitimately what they were teaching. So please, this isn't me assuming that's what they were teaching. Jesus says that that's what they're teaching. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, he does that a dozen times. He takes a common teaching, a common teaching from the Old Testament, and he applies it and explains it properly as God would have applied and explained. So literally the religious leaders in the first century were telling God's people, you, you, you have to love those around you. By the way, neighbor for the Israelites were themselves. It was their own people. Love your group and hate the other. This, this totally coalesces with our own identity politics today, where you rah-rah your party or your side, and you demonize the other side horrifically. Memes, jokes, I'm sure if you're on Facebook, I am not, but I'm sure you've got those Facebook friends that are ripping on every policy, every practice, everything of the other. And that's just the way they speak. That's not the first time it's happened. Welcome to the first century. Your neighbor was an Israelite, and the enemy was everyone else. Now, Now here is their biblical reasoning. Their interpretation of the Old Testament commands of God's judgment against people groups was the root for this interpretation. So they looked at the Old Testament and say, look what God would do to the Babylonians or the Philistines. He would wipe them out. Even at times, and these become difficult problem of evil questions for today that we're not going to even get close to even touching on. But it would not just wipe out the soldiers and military. It would wipe out all the men, all the women, all the children, even the animals. So you can maybe see, I hope you don't see it too clearly because Jesus obviously thinks it's wrong, but you could maybe see how the religious leaders in the, old, in the first century would look at the Old Testament and say, well, God is clearly wanting to annihilate our enemies. And hate in the Bible is language for murder. And they would just say, look at all the Old Testament passages where God does exactly that. That is the posture we're supposed to have. So hear Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said, love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In verse 44, Jesus teaches us the way we are to think about and act toward others. Notice it's moved from singular to plural. You've heard it said, hate your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Meaning you don't get to pick and choose. Well, that's the one enemy I'm going to have to love. The rest I can hate. Every single one of them. And notice also it even commands us not just to love our enemies, but to pray for those who persecute you. So so, so sit on that a minute, right? Because just sit on that. What kind of a posture is that toward people who may be evil, corrupt, causing pain and suffering in your own life, let alone in the life of others? What kind of a posture is that? Jesus isn't saying that they won't be dealt with. He won't be saying that there won't be true justice. He will bring that. 
He's just simply saying that you're not the rider on the white horse. He is. Your response to that is to love them. Your response to them, even the most horrific, is to pray for them. Now, there's a lot of other things that we might want to apply to that, but just just sit on that for a second. By the way, love doesn't simply mean put up with. It doesn't just mean endure. What love means is to act favorably toward. It means to extend grace and hospitality and mercy. And you do this because that's exactly what God has done himself. And by the way, he continues to do. Look at verse 45 and following. Why do you do this? That word that there in 45 is, is the re, it's, that's the reasoning. It's literally a Greek transitional word that means here's the reason why. Here's what, here's what makes you do this. It's not just some weird philanthropy. It literally is driven theologically. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That means you be children who look like the Father. Who be children who act like the Father. You ever said, maybe at Thanksgiving, the apple didn't fall far from the tree? Right? When I got my little nephew that looks like my brother-in-law, my wife's younger brother, and I see my wife looking at that little 11-year-old and have all these memories of her little annoying brother at the same age and telling stories about the siblings and you can see the nieces and nephews listening to their aunt, their dad and aunt or their mom and uncle telling stories about what they were like as kids. You can see the traits. They act, not just look like, they act like their parents. So Jesus is saying, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you can act like your father does. And then he gives some examples. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm pretty sure the Nazis got as much rain for their harvest and crops as the people that they persecuted. And then he gives some examples. Uh, Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Well done. Well, even the tax collectors do that? The greedy people that are basically pillaging and using money as the end all? If you greet, look at this, it's not even just, it's not even just love, it, it just greets, right? Imagine just like a cold shoulder. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Christians are to behave in the world as Christ did, to treat others as he treated them. Brothers and sisters, we have a long way to go. Uh, This would mean a few things. This would mean all snarky comments, all hateful, critical memes would be completely off the table. Not one. Not one Biden joke or every other side Trump joke. Not one blatant exaggeration of reality. Not one kind of comment even about policies unless actually you're there to discuss the best way forward. Like, imagine how much politic talk would just go out the window in about 10 seconds. No jokes, no mocking, nothing. I mean, can you imagine Jesus sitting with his disciples doing what we do? Hey, you seen this new meme? Hey, you seen this new meme? Look at that. Goofballs, they're going to burn in hell. Goofballs. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Sitting there just memeing on people? Facebook posts? Look at that stupid policy. You ever see that? Just ripping, negative 
Can you imagine Jesus talking? I mean, I, I don't know the left side as well. It's both sides. But can you imagine Jesus talking in the tone of Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson? They're angry. They're just plain angry. And you can completely agree with all of their policies, and some of us may, sure. I can't ever think that that would be a good one to listen to. That, that's a kind of slanderous pornography that should be outlawed. You listen to five hours a week of Laura Ingram, you're filled with some hate. Maybe when the show is on, you're praying instead. You pray for every party that you're opposed to, for their salvation, that God would minister to them, that he would redeem what you consider to be horrific realities. Like again, this, this is the radical nature of the command, not suggestion that Jesus is making here. So let me go, let me go, let me go to the next section of your notes there. What truths does Jesus want us to hear from this text? Here we go. Our treatment of others cannot depend on who they are, what they believe, or what they do to us. This is not a call, by the way, to some, you're, you're, you're just a little wimp, right? The defense against culture that a lot of us have been raised in are going to feel like we're being wimpy, right? Uh, rhinos or not if we fight this. I mean, you can just hear the rhetoric of someone calling you a wimp. Was Jesus a wimp when he took it on the cheek from a bunch of Roman soldiers? Would a real Jesus man have just annihilated those guards when they put the crown of thorns on his head? Hey, I'll go to the cross, but I'm going to whoop all of you. Was that what, is that the Jesus that you imagine looking good? This is not a call of being passive victims. You and I should pursue justice, God's justice. We should pursue human flourishing. And there are practices and policies in our world that are actually distorting the way God designed a family to be, that are ruining the lives of children, taking the lives of children. We should fight that like Jesus did. We should pursue justice. But it means we cannot hate, we cannot slander, we can't even think poorly of or desire their demise. And I worry if, like its own kind of pornography, that's exactly what we've done. We've demonized the opponents. It's hard not to, right? You get this argument, you frame it apocalyptically, it's the end of America as we know it, right? We're doing it for the sake of our children. Then you can make your opponents basically demonic forces and all's free game. And I'm just wondering then, how do you reconcile this text? I'll, I'll, I'll let us speak to that in a moment, but I'm just throwing that question out there rhetorically. How do you reconcile this text? And I'm aware for a lot of us, hopefully a small number of us maybe, it would actually require us having to not engage in certain forms of conversation. There might actually be people you just cannot do breakfast with uh, as often, because that's all they're going to want to do. What's phenomenal is God lets the evil man's crops grow even if he is offended by their evil. He pursues their good and human flourishing even when they are not pursuing the same. Second truth this text might suggest to us is that a Christian's love of enemy has to be a detached love. That is, a love not governed by the object of our love. Now, to be fair, I think you'd want to agree with me that that's exactly the kind of love Jesus and God did for us. He didn't love us because we were lovable. He didn't base his love on 
Oh, that Mickey guy, what a cutie. He is so easy to love. I'm going to die for his sins. That's not, God, that's not how God loved. Who was Mickey claimed before holy God? A deserving recipient of his wrath. So his love was not based on what I did for him. It wasn't based on, well, he, he I mean, he sins, but he's a good guy. None of that. I was deserving of his wrath. His holiness was entirely and completely offended by the nature of my existence. So that when he sent his son to die in my place, it was not based on my lovableness, but on his detached generosity and love toward me. He based it on his own character, not mine. God's love is not based on what he receives from them. In, in, in this text, it's the evil. He's not, he's not like, well, I'm going to let it rain on all these evil people as well too. Why not? No, it's not based on that. It is based on his own self-sufficient love, his glory. Our love for our enemy then is rooted in our love for God. And it's God's love for us flowing through us. It is not because they deserve that kind of treatment. They actually might not. But God does. To be honest, all true and proper love is detached love. If you haven't heard that detached love, it just simply means you're not loving because you get something in return. True love is hard. Detached love from ourselves so that it is not to our benefit or gain. If it's not detached love, the alternative is self-love. It's easy to love when you get something back. Try loving when you get nothing. That's why Jonathan Edwards used to say, actually loving your own children is basically a version of loving yourself. If you can't do that well, that's the easy part. Now love somebody that doesn't give you anything. In fact, they take from you. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love your enemy command is ultimately a command against self-love. To do this, brothers and sisters, you have to love yourself less and love your God more. Last thing, and, and just maybe this is just a way of reflecting it a bit. Love is not liking, right? You have to like them. Uh, it, it, it's not that you have to be best buddies. Love is having someone's best interest in mind as you pursue their good and human flourishing. And several aspects in the text declare this. Verse 44, pray for them. This is probably the greatest and first step, right? So if you are just one of those that loves to do your political memes, take, do a list of your top 10 favorite attacking opponents, put them on your, whatever, refrigerator, and pray for those people every day by name. Pick your biggest opponents. And those are the people that you daily pray for. Uh, how about verse 44 also says, do not respond in kind when persecuted. Like they're going to, hey, they're going to, hey, they're going to get us. Oh, we're going to give it right back. Fight fire with fire, baby. Uh, no, there's no Bible verse that says that. It says a reverse. Verse 45 suggests do good to them and do good for them like God does. Or verse 47, greet them, treat them as humans, treat them as image bearers of God. Again, Casey mentioned that, I think, helpful book by Russell Moore, where he says one of the biggest mistakes we Christians have made is we've just done well at demonizing our opponents. You can't do that. You have to humanize them, actually. 
You have to do the opposite. You have to humanize your opponents. You have to picture them made in the image of God. You have to picture them like you, a recipient worthy of the wrath of God who needs the grace of Jesus. And praise be to God, Jesus did not treat you and me like we deserve. The reason we sit here on a Sunday morning, not just drinking coffee in our own warm living rooms, is because God said, even though you don't love me, I love you. Even though you won't even live for me, I'm going to die for you. And we gather here week after week, and we acknowledge his name. And then he looks to us and says, should you treat anybody else differently than I treated you? So when we look at the bottom of your notes, how might Jesus apply his teachings in this text? Here we, here we go to application, right? How might Jesus apply his teachings in this text to the way Christians think and act toward the sexually progressive culture of today. Here, here's where the rubber meets the road. Now, to be fair, it might take a little bit of crockpotting this for all of us personally. Because it might be, we might be so emotion-filled, or if you've been demonizing and not humanizing your opponents for a long time, it's hard to shake that. But I have at least two points I want to make, and then I want to talk about, I want to reflect on what we've talked about, and then I, with whatever time we have, I'd love to take the test case of the drag queen at the Rockton Library. Simple one, real easy. For two, two points that I'd like to make. It is not enough to have biblical principles. We must also have biblical postures, right? The, the, Matthew 5 is not talking about principles. He's assuming we've got the right view of human sexuality and gender. And I think that our position as a church, which is the position of the church going back 2,000 years, which is completely verified in both Testaments and basically every biblical book, is the right position. But you can have that principle, truth, and not have grace. Remember the early part of John when Jesus is both truth and grace? Ah, wouldn't it be nice if it was just truth? And we could just be jerks, truth and jerks, jerks for Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice? And praise to God, it's not just grace without truth. Because honestly, that's what, a, that's what a progressive Christianity actually does. It speaks of grace, but it actually has no truth. But what a conservative Christianity tends to do is be high on truth and then no grace. And somehow Jesus did both of those to perfection. This text is not debating whether you have truth. It's debating how you live that out. So we, 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 we don't actually need, I mean, you may want to discuss more in the Q&A and last week. There might be lots of things, topics you want, how's a biblical defined gender, sexuality. Like, there's a lot of things we can talk about. But just so you know, our position hasn't changed or with the church hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Like, there's no debate on that. There's not one person like, I wonder if, the, no, there's no, there's not even, not even, it's not even on the radar. So the challenge for us is not what do we believe about you know, gay marriage or trans... There's no debate over what the Bible says about that. There's, there's not even a question. The challenge is that now we engage with the world. How do we do that? And, and the last thing I want to say is, and maybe this is hard to hear, I, I don't mean this to be too harsh on our tradition, but we must be aware that we have likely been raised in a culture, Christian culture, that 
contained teaching more like the Pharisees than Jesus. Meaning there was a syncretism, a blending of Christian ideas and principles and doctrines and secular postures and practices that you, it's, you just can't avoid. You just can't avoid that. And really what the Bible does is in every generation, it's forming and disciplining like an athlete training its, his or her body, training them to, to discipline themselves to follow the way of the master Jesus Christ. And every generation is going to hear some well done. Remember, remember the revelation, the letters to the seven churches? Every one of those was, hey, good job, but sit down for a second. How good to see you. I love what I see there. You got a minute to talk? I mean, that's what every seven letter did. And I don't think like Hope Church, like, nope, they're good. Let's move on to Life Church now. Right? No, I mean, it would be the same thing. Like, oh, I love what I'm seeing in Hope Church. Uh, Can we have a congregational meeting, please? Right? That's what he would say. Because we're human. We're not Jesus. So it's always about reforming. Semper reformata. Always reforming. Always discipling. Always being made in the image of Christ. That's always what it is. So we just need to know, and if you have any history of the last 75 years of American evangelicalism, we've probably been discipled in ways that would look at times more like Pharisees than like Jesus, even with the right biblical truths and the gospel in our midst. So I'm gonna gonna ask Doug and Mark now to grab the mics and pass, and we've got 10, maybe 15 minutes, and then I I, want to spend a few minutes just responding and reflecting on the things that we just said, and specifically Matthew 5. Uh, How do we do this? And and maybe just respond to that first initial question that we have there at the bottom of your page. How might Jesus apply his teachings in this text to the way Christians think and act toward the sexually progressive culture of today? Feel free to speak, raise your hand, and then we'll dialogue together. I would respond to that first question. It's not enough to have biblical principles, truth. We also have to have a biblical posture, grace, by strongly recommending Tim Keller's book, um, Prodigal God. That's really convicting. That really addresses that question. And it really makes you look at your life and feel that you fall short on the grace part. Yeah, Tim Keller, the prodigal God, Keller, I think, modeled this beautifully. And he actually got attacked. I mean, he, of course he's going to get attacked by the liberals because he was historic, faithful, orthodox Christian. He actually got attacked a lot by conservatives uh, because they felt that he was, like, too wishy-washy on things. I think what they were attacking, though, was his grace. Because in some of those right Christian circles, it's, atta- it's defense against purity from. And Tim Keller, ministering for 30 years in New York City, you know what he did? He loved them. He simply loved people over and over again. He wasn't the judge. He wasn't also going to put up with denials. He was slammed by New York. Slammed, slammed, slammed. And he planted a church of 35 people in New York that grew to 5,000 people. You know why? Because he was preaching the gospel. He wasn't, but I mean, you're going to have some, like he needs to take a stand for a particular candidate or a political party. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. He wasn't getting into those fights He was centering on the gospel. So he actually got slammed a lot by some on the right, even well-known Christians and pastoral figures. And I actually think that's because he was doing it well. He was doing it well. So yeah, that's a good book. 
Others? What we need to remember, too, is Jesus didn't do as I say and not as I do. That's right. He hung on the cross. He, he sent out no revenge. Um, he asked for uh, water, vinegar, whatever they gave him. That's right. Um, and when he was dying, his last words were, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So that was, that was showing the love, and that's oh. the love we need to try to imitate. But if we try to do it on our own, we're going to fall flat on our face. Before we start praying that list on the refrigerator, that's right. we need to ask God to fill us with, fill our hearts with His love. That's right. Hard to do. What, what Jesus did. When you think about grace and love, that's remarkable. Right? That is, that's a remarkable kind of grace and love. Um, so while you were talking, I was, I was thinking about <clears throat> what lies beneath our hatred for the enemy. And I posed three questions. Is it because we do not trust God to deal with evil? <laughs> do we not trust God's ways more than our sinful instincts? And are we afraid that what we don't fight will overcome us? And I thought of the parable of, um, that Jesus told about the wheat and the, and the weeds. And, and uh, in God's wisdom, he allows the, the weeds to remain until it's time. Otherwise, the wheat would also perish. And when we hate our enemy, it's as though we're saying, no, I don't trust the way you want to do it, God, I'm going to go ahead and yank these weeds out now. And we just don't know what we're doing. We're not trusting God's ways. That's right. That's right. And, and, and that's, that may be one of the most important realities is that the truth is when we don't do what Jesus is commanding, we are taking the place of God as judge and executioner. That is not our role. That is not our role. And it's hard for us not to want to take others. Shouldn't we, as Christians, stand up for right when it's an obvious right and wrong according to the Bible? Yeah, and, and, and that's the, that's the, that's, that the question there is not just a yes or no. What does it mean to stand up for the right? I, I don't mean right politically. I mean for the right thing. That is actually a very hard question. I mean, let, 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 let's go to the test case. Just... To, I hope you had a couple donuts. Um, a drag queen is scheduled for the Rockton Library not long ago. For anyone who's a Christian, it would make about as much sense as, uh, I mean, just like, like celebrating abortion or whatever. It makes absolutely no sense. And in many ways, to be fair, I mean, again, we don't, we don't want to demonize opponents in ways. It is such a distortion of God's created form and practices that it has a demonic reality to its truth value. It's the anti-truth, right? All of that is true. So what kind of response does a Christian or the church do? I mean, let me just, I'll have you respond, but let me make a couple of thoughts. Clearly, one response would be sadness 
I'm guessing probably most of our first response was anger. If your first response was anger, that'll probably tell you you're a bit more the defense against. And nothing wrong with that. I'm just telling you, if your first response was fight, then probably there's a bit of that defense against in you. And that's not all bad because we should be defending. There's a, there's a truth value to the defense against. But we would hope that one of the postures was actually just, oh, Lord, no. Because it's not just now somewhere far away in a major urban center or something. It's like right at the library. I've only been to the library once, but I've been to the ice cream place nearby a couple times. <laughs> so sadness is the reality of such a distorted view of sexuality. And then maybe even protection. Uh, anger, but protection at the reality of its presentation to children. Like, I, I don't think we've ever done a reading with our daughter there, or boys even. I mean, so it's not like it's like, oh, we can't go to that one or something. Like, we just had never done those. So it's not, but I mean, and there's lots of things we're protecting our kids from. Like, just, there's movies that, that she doesn't see. I'm thinking of my youngest, or other types of shows, or lots of things, even conversations that maybe I'd have with my college-age son that I wouldn't have with my, yeah, absolutely. There's tons of protection. But man, when it's at the local library like that, there, there's, there's reasons to figure out what we can do. I, I want to say one other thing before I open it up, what's a good response. We can actually all agree, or should all agree, that there are several viable options to what a Christian or a church might do in regard to this. Meaning, it's not like the Bible says, here's exactly the protocol to follow when the drag queen comes to Rockton Library. You could actually have Christians disagreeing about the protocol. So the church could do a formal response. The church could do no response at all. Both of those show biblical response. Because the church could say, well, well, here's what we believe. Or the church just already said what it believes in its bylaws, doctrinal statement, website, and hopefully weekly preaching and teaching. Christians could be doing various things and getting involved, or they could actually not do something and all of those would be okay. None of those is promoting it in one way. You could though do things that are not good. Like you could do things that are harmful or don't reflect the love and grace of Christ. So with caution and trepidation, I, I want to open the floor. What are some reasonable responses that match Christ's words love your enemies in regard to the drag queen at Rockton Library. Raise your hand and take a mic. Um, the one thing that you could do that sounds really strange, invite them to dinner. Underneath all the makeup and the theatrics is a human being. And it's hard to see that, but it's no different than the mask that a lot of us put on every day to try to pretend we got it all together. None of us does. And it's very uncomfortable, but that's the only way you can spend time interacting with them, find out who they really are instead of who they're pretending to be. Yeah. And, and, and I'm guessing that probably wasn't the first thought most people had. But if you look at the Gospels, welcome to the main strategy of Jesus. And, and I've mentioned a, a book, or I'm a person, I don't remember if I mentioned her book, Rosaria Butterfield. She's pretty... She's pretty extreme in her conservative views on like, whether it's gender, hospitality, and all that. I mean, she's, she's on one strong right side. But she was a lesbian, feminist, literature professor tenured at Syracuse when an elderly pastor and his wife literally had her in their home like 50 times. And she literally hated everything they stood for. But they just kept offering her coffee. <laughs> 
And they were so sweet and kind, and they just shared Jesus. And they did not demand her to not have her views. They just invited her into their home. Now again, the defense against posture, I'm just speaking to what has been in the water that we've been drinking, would probably think first in terms of political engagement. So a statement or a, something with a board, library, those are viable responses. I'm not denying any of those. There are political actions, to Mr. Grossman's point, that maybe should be done for human flourishing of our community, protection of our kids. Yeah, sure, yes. But just put in that mix, not just wanting to crucify that broken person who is clearly so distorted in their thinking, they are completely misaligned from their creator. And having mercy, feeling a sense of empathy and brokenness for them which is not the first impulse in this generation of conservative Christians. It just is not. And, and this text and the gospel as a whole would push otherwise. O other comments? Others? Back there. Yeah, I was, I actually got there inside for that, for the drag queen meeting. And uh, it was interesting, the conversations that I could strike up with some of the people. Both sides, there was so much hate coming from both sides. And a lot of what they were doing is, is pretty much poking the Christian bear. And they wanted to expose the hatred for themselves so sure. they could get, get their point across to actually promote what the parade was about and what the whole drag show was about. And a lot of the people that were there, um, when they got up the microphones and would, would give their speeches, um, they were saying, I mean, they were quoting scripture and everything, but they were telling them on what a sinful life they're leading and everything else. And all that does is build the wall taller. And when I struck up some conversations with some people, I said, you know, we're not allowed to hate you. I said, I, I may not like what you do, but it doesn't mean I can hate you. I mean, it's just like being a parent. You don't hate your kids. I mean, you don't like the actions they do. So you discipline the action. But even then, you know, if we, if we start stepping on the toes of standing up for your right, now we start getting into the whole free speech thing too with politics. And if you take away their free speech, they get to take away our free speech. It's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street on that. And so they're allowed to gather and have their parades just like everybody does for Christmas and everything else. It's just, but the way that you have to approach it is not to hate them and tell them what they're doing is so wrong. The more you tell them that, it's just the more that it feeds, feeds into them to want to come out and even push it even further. And I had a lot of good conversations with the people there, and I would just ask them the question, why do you think we hate you so much? And they would come out and they would give the explicit examples behind that. And I would just tell them, I said, well, that's not a true Christian attitude, and it's not a real true Christian value because we're not allowed to hate you. I said, we can go out for breakfast. We can do, you know, I may not join your parade, but I'm more than happy to have a conversation with you, have breakfast with you, do whatever you want, meet with you. We can sit down and just have civil conversations and just talk about anything. Well, it's so hard. This is why, this is why I think these categories of defense, and defense against purity from are so helpful because if purity from is to avoid the world completely, like if we just never saw them, we'd be better for it. Of course, forget the whole Great Commission stuff. That's a little bit of a problem. But there's truth to the purity from. Like, we, there should be a distinct separation between us and the world. We, we are not going to do or see the same things they do and see. But the defense against is hard because it, the, the end goal almost makes it seem like if I can defeat my opponent, I'm victorious. That actually isn't the ultimate end goal. But it's hard to 
Get off that. Yet again, the defense against has some truth. This is, this is not what our community wants. This is not good for our community. This is corrupt at the deepest level that we should be promoting human flourishing at a communal level. We should be pursuing that and doing that in good and righteous ways as citizens of this community. Absolutely. But man, if we just fight fire with fire, which is really what it turns into, they're going to yell on their side. We're going to yell on ours. And do you walk away? What do you walk away from that? I mean, I didn't go to it. I, I wouldn't have gone. But when you walk away from something like that, and maybe yours was, was different, but I mean, if you were just standing there and you, you're opposing sides and you're just each shouting and cheering with your, what do you feel after that? What if you just stayed home and prayed? Again, I'm not saying protest is wrong. I'm not. You have to have room for jagged line responses to jagged line issues. You can respond to this in a couple different ways and still be completely Christian. There has to be room for that. If if this is black and white to you, not the truth, but the posture, then you're missing how flexible the Bible is on some of those jagged line issues. There are straight line issues, and in the truth area, this is a straight line issue. There's, in fact, I even argued week two, it's a first order issue, sexuality and gender, first order issue. It's not a, oh, we can agree, disagree. No, the Bible makes it too clear. It's too centered on the gospel. But do I go and yell? Do I write a letter? Do I stay home and pray? Do I just cry and don't have any kind of political, vocal response? There's actually flexibility there, biblically speaking. But I will tell you, I wonder if this text like Matthew 5 doesn't just push us on the actions per se, it does probe a lot on the heart. And I just wonder if you went and felt some kind of maybe even self-righteousness about it, was your heart in the right place? Meaning you could actually fight for something good and be sinning doing it. And wouldn't that be an irony? That in fighting for something that's ultimately good and true, you had to sin even in your own being to do that. To me, that would be heartbreaking. Last, last comment, then we'll have to close. Between 30 and 40 years ago, our kids were all at that age where they would be at the library story hour. Um, we took them multiple times. I read two kids I didn't know at the library story hours in Belvedere. Um, the library concentrated on classics, things that would, as you say, uphold the the human flourishing and I want to contrast that with the difference that was promoted here at this drag queen story hour that I don't believe it was promoting human flourishing and it as a Christian over that 40-year period I had opportunities and I took them as I engaged in the political arena and in so doing, you affect where funds go, where public policy goes, and you do, as a Christian, your best to promote what is for the community good, the flourishing, as was stated earlier. Not that I would ever say I hated anybody, but the, the direction that people on any side of an issue that I was debating would want funds to go in a different direction. So there was a give and take, a debate, 
and public policy and direction was sent, uh, set. So in this position as a library, you and I both submit tax dollars to run that library. As a Christian, I think we have an opportunity to have voice in what would promote human flourishing without specifically saying, I don't care for this character who's dressed up in this way. But I, I think there's an appropriate stance in the public that, that Christians should take too. Yeah, the, the, the should and can, right? I saw that none of this is to say that civic engagement shouldn't be involved. But even then, Christ, Christians do disagree on that, right? There's, there's an there's a interesting book that came out recently called The Benedict Option, which is actually calling, it, it would be a version of Purity From, it's actually calling for a new monistic, monastic life for Christians. Do your own communities, do your, disengage from culture, etc. Uh, there are gonna be some of our brothers and sisters that think that's the approach to go. There is reason, biblical, biblically argue, that we should be involved citizens pursuing the human good and human flourishing of everybody in our community. And that would include what to have or not to have in a local library, absolutely. Again, even then though, how you do that can look very different. You could do that by voting. You could do that by getting on a board or writing a simple letter to the library or to your local congressman. All of those are fair and open. All of those can be done very well, honoring God, loving neighbor, pursuing human good, with love for enemies, with deeply drenched in prayer. And there's also responses that could just be hate-filled and simply seeking some kind of power of the, of the heart. Again, the action might look the same, but the intention could be different. I think we just have to be aware of. So I, uh, again, I, I bring up a tough topic, but the reality is these are only just becoming more and more common in our midst. And our children and grandchildren will, will not have the option of just having one scenario. There will be scores of them in the decades to come as Christianity has a waning influence in our midst. And we need to know that and understand that. Let me pray. Father, help us as we continue to wrestle with these topics, to think biblically, Christianly about them. Lord, help us to see in our own lives how we have at times been discipled by your truth, but uh, postures we might have toward our world was dictated by things that lacked your full truth. So make us a people that as much as we pursue the common good and human flourishing of our community, to be praying. You, you didn't mention voting, Lord, you, but we should. You didn't mention letter writing, but we could. You didn't mention getting on a board, but we might. But you mentioned praying. Lord, forgive us if we yelled more than we prayed. Forgive us if we slandered more than we prayed. So maybe start with us, Father, as First Peter says, you'll start in your people. Start in us, that our hearts would have the right posture with the true truth, so that when we think about our enemies, it's already rightly aimed. Forgive us where we have not, and help us to be lovers of even the most disagreeable people in our midst. Thank you for your word, which teaches us, but also rebukes us in righteousness. Thank you for this wonderful group of people. Bless us as we go on with our Sunday morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.